Hey, Risto here, George Mason University. Um, I will cut to the chase. We published a book, and by we, I mean Aaron Santeo from the University of Hawaii. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Risto. And Tom Quarmby from Leeds Beckett University from the UK. Hi, Tom. Hi, Risto. And the title of our book is Before and After School Physical Activity Programs, Frameworks, Critical Issues, and Underserved Populations. Um, this book is available now through Routledge, and um, I've pasted the link to the book. Uh, you can get it through a, uh, an ebook or the hardcover. Uh, it's available right now. It just got published in the very beginning of 2021. So um, let's start off with an uh, interesting question uh, for, to Tom. Um, I want to know why um, your book was in the trash can before you even uh, got to read it. Uh, yeah, uh, I think, to be honest, um, I think the postman tried to deliver the book and for whatever reason, um, national lockdown permitting, we weren't in at the time. And so what he decided to do, or I think what I'm presuming what he decided to do was he, he left it in a safe place and he dumped it in our green recycling bin. Um, and in our green recycling bin is basically just a load of brown cardboard boxes and the book came in brown cardboard packaging so just like everything else and I think I was very fortunate that I got a an alert on our security camera to notify the, me that the postman had been down the drive and was putting stuff in the bin and uh, when I got back I quickly grabbed it out because that afternoon was uh, bin collection day so it had gone if I hadn't got there in time. Uh, it, just, it just astounds me that that is the, the safe place to store things in, in this person's mind, which I saw that on, on, on Twitter and I literally laughed out loud. I thought it was hilarious that somebody goes in and goes, hey, I think they're going to look for this in the trash can instead of like hiding it behind a bush or something like that. Or under yeah, the welcome. Well, it, I mean, it, the only thing I can think of is that he was worried about wet weather. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And we're very happy that you got your copies. And uh, we have a ton of different authors on, on this book. So it's it's been cool to see them uh, post or just send a nice email to us saying that they finally got their copies. And uh, we just wanted to do this kind of podcast to get the three of us together to discuss uh, the book, um, kind of explain what it's about, highlight a couple chapters. Uh, but I guess first we, we want to clarify in the book what we talk about or what, what we define as before and after school physical activity programs uh, and how they're different from PE. Um, because Tom, Aaron, and I both are all of us have done research in schools um, and we've started to do some more after school research um, recently. And so I guess the, the bare bones definition of after school or before and after school. It's basically any time that's outside of the normal school hours, but still uh, the parents haven't picked up their kids. So in a before school program, it's after they drop them off and the parents go to work, they're at school, but it's not during regular school hours or um, after school programs, obviously before the parents are able to pick them up. And, and the biggest difference that we've seen here is, is time. Like in after school programs, we have so much more time and we have less of these rigid regulations in before and after school programs. Um, 
you know, in a school where you might have standards or you might have uh, very specific minute requirements, you know, the REACH program that we highlight in the book uh, that we wrote, that I wrote about, um, you know, we have two and a half hours, two hours, two days a week with the, with the students. So um, I found that it's, it's time to build relationships and it's so much easier to, to do that. And I think, you know, the recent research, Carla Luguetti talks about activist approach, um, you know, Michael Hempel talks about restorative approaches. I just think that in after school programs, you just have so much more time to actually implement those. Um, so our focus in the book is about physical activity programs, not necessarily PE, but I, I would venture to guess that if you walked into uh, some of these after school programs that we highlight in, in um, the second theme, you, you would think that it might be physical education. Um, but we use some other language in here too, and I, we want to kind of clarify that as well. So Tom, can you explain one of the sections is focused on socially vulnerable or underprivileged or underserved students? And we kind of go through those. So uh, you wrote that section on, on how to define the differences between those. So can you kind of explain the differences between those terms and what we used? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess, you know, we've, we've framed the book with the term underserved, um, which stems from um, Hellison's work with children and young people who live in sort of socially stigmatized or minority communities and who face a range of um, issues such as, you know, poverty or um, a high prevalence of, of gangs and crime. Um, but there's a range of terms that have been used previously across the, the sort of broad spectrum of, of PE and and youth sport to describe similar populations. So Rachel Sanford, for instance, has used the term disaffected youth. Uh, Fred Coulter has used the term youth at risk. And more recently, um, you know, Carla Luguetti and, and Kim Oliver have coined the term youth from socially vulnerable backgrounds because this term highlights the social conditions in which children and young people live and avoids the sort of blame game um, and that blame being positioned at the at young people's feet. So importantly in the book, um, the chapter authors draw on sort of the full range of these terms, but they do so, do so to describe youth who have predominantly fewer opportunities than their peers and who now or in the past have experienced some form of um, inequality or injustice. Yeah. Um... And I think that those terms are really important to discuss. And I and I, I love the fact that we, we had this long discussion exactly about the, the blame, right? That it's not termed too specifically uh, the youth. So um, I think maybe, maybe it's good that I can kind of give like an overview to this edited book. Um, I think one of, the, one of the bonuses that comes out of this is that there's so many different worldviews. We have scholars from all around the globe talking about different angles. It's not specifically U.S. focused. And I think in the very beginning, when Aaron and I first started talking about this, um, about this book, we, we did have a very U.S. specific focus. And we reached out to Tom to come up and kind of uh, globalize us a little bit and give the, a U.K. view. And we brought in some authors from Australia, uh, New Zealand. So the, the book is basically broken down in three themes. The first one is about frameworks. So uh, Aaron wrote about CSPAP, uh, CSPAP and the whole school, whole community, whole child model. 
Um, other frameworks that we highlight in this area, restorative practices, positive youth development through sport, social emotional learning. And then uh, Fiona Chambers talks about a program that they did at the PEAT level uh, about having uh, teach education students, undergraduate students work um, out of school time with other, other uh, college students. The second theme is about methods of current programming. And basically this is highlighting successful programs that researchers have conducted research with. Um, so I, I wrote in with um, Kelly Johnston and Ray Frederick about our REACH program. Carrie Saffron talked about innovative qualitative methods. Um, she also has a really interesting blog um, on playing with research in, uh, in qualitative research that's up on our uh, HPE website. Um, Tom, you have a chapter in Care Experienced Youth. There's a chapter mm -hmm. about conflict-affected regions, uh, LGBTQ. Uh, Dylan Landy wrote a chapter on that. And then urban schools. And then the third theme is about critical issues. So we talk about informal sport. Justin O'Connor comes uh, from that uh, line of thinking from Australia, um, preparing adult learners to work in these after-school programs. Senlin Chen wrote a chapter about how to fund after-school programs. And uh, Lee Spurka talked about outsourcing. And then uh, the last chapter is about student voice. Um, so I think the the book's biggest uh, selling point is that there's such a wide overview of what's going on in this space. And it comes from, you know, scholars who are really doing the work. And we're super happy to have so many different contributors to uh, to the book. But let me let me ask you, Aaron, um, if you can kind of share a little bit more about the role you think before and after school physical activity programs uh, play in lifelong physical activity. Yeah, of course, Risto. So obviously we know that, you know, youth across the world are becoming less active more and more. And this is especially evident right now as we're still, you know, dealing with a pandemic and some of us are coming off of um, being in lockdown. Some of us, as we're listening to this, are still in lockdown. And so, you know, physical activity among our youth is problematic. And so before and after school programs, if we think about um, kind of a CISPAP or a whole school model have a unique way to be able to contribute to this. So, you know, you, obviously I'm a big CISPAP fan. I, in my work, I do a lot um, around integrating physical activity before, during, and, and after school programming. And as you mentioned before, like PE, sometimes when we think about physical activity within physical education, you know, there's a lot of other things that go on in physical education. And the one unique thing about before and after school programs is that you don't have kind of these restrictions that we think about within physical education. So you're not, you don't have to abide by standards. You have, you don't have limited time. And so there's really this opportunity for before and after school programs to contribute. Now, um, that's not saying that that's the only thing that they should contribute to, right? Like, as you stated, sometimes you have a lot more time to be able to work with and you can kind of build physical activity um, uniquely and um, within certain contexts in different ways. But allowing his, these free opportunities to be physically active is really important right now. And I, I see before and after school programs kind of playing a big role in that. You know, um, the other thing is, is that 
you're just really able to like make it relevant to youth because you don't have these restrictions. So I'm going to go back to an old reference of the field of dreams. You know, they, in that movie, they say, uh, if you build it, they will come. And I really think that that is the case for before and after school programs. I think one of the things that we struggle with is getting kids there, getting youth there and present. Um, and so as, as interventionists, as programmatic um, people that are running after before and after school programs, we really need to make it relevant to youth um, because we want them to come and it's not something that they have to attend, right? So making sure that we're making it relevant with, within that context, I think is really important to help kind of contribute to that overall goal of increasing physical activity. Yeah, and I, and I think one of the big things there is the, the access and transportation. I never realized how big of a hurdle transportation is in getting physical activity programs or after school programs running. And I think, you know, the, as much as we can, we should run the programs on school property. Um, so there's no transportation issue there. But then it's also if you are taking a bus, so if you're getting a school bus to school, then the whole school district needs to adjust and have early and late scheduled buses. So it doubles the cost of, of transportation, really, because people who aren't going to the after-school program have to get on the bus at 2.30, 3 o'clock, and those students at you know 5, 6 o'clock when they're going home, you're assuming that that parent has that transportation to come pick them up. And I, I just never realized how big of a struggle like struggle that is and i know there's a great wrestling program uh, called beat the streets that's in a bunch of different communities started in uh, new york city and they would provide a one-way um, metro card to get back home so anybody that comes in they always paid for that uh, ride home and it's just like if you think about that times hundreds of kids every day that's a huge expense of just getting the transportation. So have you, uh, have you all seen any other barriers that you've seen in after-school programs, Tom, in the, maybe the UK context? Have there, are there systematic barriers to, to getting, getting to these programs for youth? Um, I think, to be honest, you know, tra transportation is a big one, um, but we... I guess a lot of after-school programs in the UK um, are are part, much more part of the school rather than provided for by external companies or external agencies. Um, so it's it's more of an extension of the school day rather than a put-on provision by a specific program or something, which is I, I guess where the differences in context mm -hmm. become apparent a little bit. Yeah. What about what about in Hawaii? Because I mean, one of the things that I feel like the European system has a little bit better is, especially in more uh, like urban areas, you have a great system of transportation. You have public transportation. So if you're taking a bus or something, yeah. you're not relying on a school bus. You're just taking a normal bus to get to school. Uh, but what about what about in Hawaii? What what are the barriers that you've seen? Uh, to after school or before school programs? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, transportation is obviously an issue, but 
um, and that's for before school programs too, Rich. So I think that, you know, getting kids there early is also like, if you're going to run an app, a before school program, like you have to get kids there early, which mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily run on a bus schedule, but like here in Hawaii, um, I think, you know, transportation plays a role, but transportation to schooling is a little bit different here in Hawaii in general. Like we don't have public school buses, um, city buses. If a kid needs to get to school kind of serves that role. Um, if you're going to in the public school system, um, you're, it, it's like pretty much walkable, um, for the most part. Uh, but that like, that doesn't mean that students actually walk. And then, I mean, we have a huge privatized school system here in Hawaii. So a lot of kids are being bused across the island or, you know, Kamehameha, um, where a school where you have to have a native Hawaiian blood, like that's really the only um, system that does bus to school. And they do have buses that will go kind of like the late early as you're talking about. I think one of the other issues that I see, not just here in Hawaii, it does play a, a huge role here in Hawaii is the a space issue. And so if we're thinking about before and after school programs, like wh- where do you host these programs? And I know that that's also a case you know, in Michigan, where I was previously, like you compete with a lot of other different activities, such as, um, you know, sport programs, when you're thinking about, you know, if you don't look at those sport programs as um, a a traditional, you know, after school program. And so, like space is an issue. And I think that that's everywhere, not just here in Hawaii, but it's probably heightened, obviously, because, you know, we're on a rock. But Hmm. interesting, I, I, I never thought that Hawaii doesn't have school buses. I don't know why that why that's so surprising to me. But um, yeah, and I think that there's so many different struggles here. But I think that there's been a lot of really good work done in this space. And you know, we had several, several, several chapters in in here that were just really, really good. Um, but I'm going to force you to each pick one or two to kind of just highlight, not saying that they are better than the other ones in your section, but uh, just to kind of highlight a couple chapters. So, Tom, let me start with you. Is there a chapter that you'd like to share or, um, you know, highlight or that you, you feel like uh, deserves extra recognition or just is more relevant? Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, just to reiterate what you've said there, Risto, all of them are excellent chapters, um, but I think there were two that I was particularly fond of. Um, so I'm going to be greedy and I'm going to highlight two very quickly. Um, one of them was Justin O'Connor's chapter on uh, informal sport, uh, and the other was Lee Berker's chapter on sort of outsourcing it and thinking about the future of before and after school physical activity. So with Justin's chapter, he explores um, the changing role and the place of informal sport um, and looks at data on sporting trends to position this increasing influence of informal sport within young people's lives. And in doing so, he essentially argues that before and after school programs should not focus on getting young people ready, in inverted commas, uh, for participation in games or sports, which, you know, that's usually done through the teaching of um, motor skills, often in isolation. But instead, he, he says what we should focus on is fostering positive social relations and helping young people to find their best way to participate. And that may be in informal sport. And if they do this as a consequence, 
then fitness, skill development, all of those things will eventually develop as young people continue to participate. And I think that chapter really, really resonated with me. I think it's really um, current and contemporary uh, and offered a lot of insights. And then so let me, the let second me, one. Let me jump in real quick oh, just because yeah. I, when I read Justin's chapter and he's, he's had a couple different um, uh, articles about this, I just find that it's so obvious, right, in formal sport, but it's not something that people have done research on really. And we don't really know what... Yeah like what it looks like in different contexts because Justin's really one of the main people who has been exploring the space. When I was introduced to his work, I found that I just found it really fascinating. I, I asked one of my uh, students who I'm working with, he's in a student teaching uh, semester right now. And he has a little bit kind of like he's in a secondary school setting. He's having a hard time with their like kind of motivation. They're not doing like all these exciting things that he thought they were going to do. So I, I suggested that he pull the class and ask them what are their most meaningful uh, experiences in physical activity. And he said in PE. And I said no, just leave it open. Just see what they come up with. Mm -hmm. And almost all of them that he's had to uh, up until right now are out of school informal activities. It's meaningful experiences having an awesome hike or going snowboarding or snorkeling or something like that that are just not in PE and I think it comes up with a problem there because you have to figure out how to incorporate those things but I think Justin's really on to something I, I'm, I'm super happy that you highlighted that chapter because I think the informal sport is where most of us are physically active as adults going to yeah. the gym when they can or going on a bicycle ride when we can or seeing that you have an hour in your time and your day and you go out for a run or planning a hike or something like that and people who could join you join you and people who don't don't or if something comes up in your in your day-to-day -day schedule that you can't participate you know it doesn't matter you can do it the next day you're not going to get penalized and not be able to play on Saturday because you didn't show up to practice on Thursday. And I think anecdotally, informal sport, at least in England, it is, is growing in, in the before and after school space. Um, but I think there's still probably a bit of a lag in the sense that, you know, Richard Tinning talked about it years ago about the disconnect between uh, PE teacher and youth, youth culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's still still very prevalent in in the after sport after school before and after school space in the sense that you know in England a lot of it is delivered by PE teachers who deliver in PE very traditional activities and so you know a lot of these uh, parkour um, skateboarding you know some of these are beyond the the lexicon of of what PE teachers are used to mm -hmm. um, and so it doesn't carry over into that into that space, but it is, it is certainly gaining, um, gaining more prominence in, uh, in the UK context. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So what about, uh, Lee Sperka's chapter? Um, yeah. So the second chapter that I wanted to highlight, um, Lee's chapter, it, it basically looks at the possible futures of what before and after school physical activity programs might look like or, or might be, um, so she describes one possible future 
whereby, and this is driven by um, an overcrowded curriculum and the low status of, of health and physical education, in this scenario, before and after school programs are delivered by external providers and they consume curricular HPE. Um, so they basically take it over. The other possible future is um, where curricular HPE consumes after school programs due to the sort of overscheduling of children. And in, in such a scenario, sport and fitness are solely then delivered in curriculum time. Um, which, you know, she makes the case that it, it takes away the E from, from PE, but that's one potential future. And what I really like about that chapter is that it, it just gets you to, it prompts you to think about what might be if we carry on in, in these trends with outsourcing, um, where we might get to and, and what we could do as um, educators, practitioners working in that area to, to work with those potential futures. Awesome, Aaron. Um, what about what about a chapter or two from from your section? Yeah, Risto. So, you know, this is really hard for me. Um, you know that I'm one that I don't like to make decisions. So, for all of you that don't know me well, I hate making like put in a box to make decisions. So, um, theme two really focuses on like after before and after school programming in underserved communities and. Um, this was kind of our practical theme where we got to see a lot of before and after school programs in practice. And so it was really hard to to choose one or two. Um, but I think the two that stuck out to me the most was um, Chapter 9 uh, by Carrie Saffron, um, Getting Lost and Being Flexible and Using Innovative Methods in After School Programs. And then Chapter 13 by Dylan Landy, which was Outside the Box, LGBT. Uh, LGBTQ inclusive PA programs. And what I really like about these two chapters, um, and I would say that this kind of, this can be seen in a lot of chapters in this theme is this idea of student voice and how we really need to listen to students that are in our programs and allow those students to kind of drive what's going on in the program and um, be okay with as um, program developers, as interventionists, as school personnel, be okay with um, students really organically developing what's happening in those programs. And, you know, they talk about just this importance of student voice and making sure that we're involving the youth. And I really think, you know, that this is important to keep in mind. We can't be planning programming and you know, going and inserting it in in isolation. Like we really need to understand what the what the youth are thinking, and I think that that's what's going to lead to to successful before and after school programs. And then also just um, this the concept that you know I obviously I'm a proponent of physical activity, but I think that it's important to keep in mind that there's so many benefits of before and after school programs that are that our students can take away and. Although, you know, we have a, a focus of health and being lifelong learners, um, you know, kind of allowing the students to lead allows them to go in a direction that they need. And I think that that's, you know, really important. Yeah. And I, those two chapters are also really well written, like they, they flow really easily and you kind of get caught up with them. Um, so both great chapters to pick. Um, 
I'll, I'll highlight one um, in, in that early section about the frameworks and one of the reasons why I chose using restorative practices in out-of-school PA programs by Michael Hemphill and Kevin Richards is that um, I've, I've worked with Michael and Kevin on a project using restorative practices and I see so much potential in this. And the, um, the chapter is really good because it outlines what they are, how to use them, what the process is. Um, and, you know, Michael talks about and Kevin talk about the fact that, you know, these restorative practices uh, have been around for ages in, in speci specifically in like indigenous cultures, the First Nation in Canada, Maori populations, Native Americans. Um, and that restorative practices extend beyond the, the pr prison system of restorative justice. And I think that, again, it's, and Michael runs this program in uh, North Carolina in a secondary school in like school time. So I know it can work in schools, but I think it's, it's harder to do so in like doing these awareness circles and restorative circles in a 30 minute a day PE program. Uh, but I think in after school programs, these can really thrive. And, you know, Michael has, and he presents here as well, this idea of restorative youth sports, which I think uh, can work really, really well in uh, sports programs in you know whatever level it is. If it's at the university level or if it's at um, a rec league level, I think these restorative practices uh, can be really seamlessly integrated. And for those of you who know what teaching personal and social responsibility, TPSR model is, um, it has a lot of overlap with that. And he's built it on top of work in TPSR to have the restorative youth sports model. So I just found it a really informative, easy chapter to get into. Um, so that's why I, I picked that. Again, tons of other chapters in here um, that were all great. But let me, let me ask you both, what are the next steps? Like what are we, at the end, we, in the conclusion section, we set up a bunch of questions that we want answered. But what, what are the things, and let me go to you, Tom, first. Um, what do we need to know still in these after-school or before and after-school programs? Um, I think for me, and this echoes Erin's point that she raised a minute ago, um, you know, research in this area is rel relatively new in comparison to sort of mainstream uh, physical education. And I think it's still a question of making sure that we continue to capture the experiences of underserved youth um, in these novel programs and consider what is important to them and what learning we can take from it to inform practice in other contexts. And I think that's what we do really well in this book is, as you said, Risto, we provide um, a range of different contexts from the US to the UK to Australia, New Zealand, et cetera. And I think moving forward, it's a case of how can we, how can we listen to young people? How can we take the learning from what they're saying and how can we inform practice in different contexts? Mm -hmm. What about you, Aaron? What are some things that you still think that yeah. we need to know? So for me, it's about how we take all this great information and use it to scale up. So, you know, we see all these amazing examples of programs, um, but 
in reality, they're kind of in isolation or they're siloed. Like we have really good success stories, right? But, you know, they're successful because they're in a specific situation. They're run by certain people um, that have a passion for what they do. And so how do we teach this on a larger scale to disseminate to the masses to actually make a difference for all youth or the youth that need it the most, right? Because what we know of programming is that the second that you try to scale something up, the more likely it is to fail, right? Because you're losing all of the concepts that are most valued, like student voice and making sure that programs are culturally competent um, and context specific. And along that same line, you know, these programs tend to be pretty expensive. As you were saying, there's a lot of barriers that occur. So how do we take these things that we have learned and and use them to provide these opportunities to more youth in more areas across the world, really? Yeah, and and I wish I would have shared my talking points with you because they were exactly the same. And I, I wish I would have gone before you because you made those points much more eloquently than I, I would have. Uh, I, I totally agree. I think scaling up is, is super difficult. And that's, you know, where internally dealing with that in reach right now we've had now six years of research in various contexts in new york and california and in a peace corps collaboration and we're having a hard time figuring out how to actually implement the program when i'm not i'm not there or ray's not there or kelly's not there or you know we i feel like and then this is a you know issue with I think a lot of programs is you run it out of a university setting or you have pre-service teachers working in there, but then how would I run a program in Alaska? How would I run a program in Oklahoma? And how would you know Dylan run a program or you know Carrie run this program? They have they're so invested in these programs. Yeah, and it, and part of it is look, you can you can go in and observe, and you can do like a case study and and document the progress of a successful program, but I still think that the the scaling up is such a question because you need so much money to be able to do it, but then you also need to be able to train the teachers, and there's a chapter about that of how to train adult adults to work in these after school programs. But how do you how do you keep them accountable? How do you know that what's happening when you are not present? So I don't know. What do you what do you think? Well, I, th- I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that goes back to what Tom was saying, too, about documenting. Like, we have to be better at documenting these success stories and really trying to get at, like, what makes them successful and then using that information to then teach the next generation and. I, I don't know what that looks like, um, but I think that it's all intertwined, right? Like it, the research has to inform um, what we're doing and, and that's going to be a way to help disseminate, but it, it really is about teaching and getting the right people to run it. And it's, I don't know, yeah. it's like an ever in never ending circle, right? Yeah. And I think the, the, one of the issues with getting competent adults in there, right? You have a really great student or a college student who's really passionate, wants to be a PE teacher. They're, they're the best after school 
teacher that you've ever had. They work for two years and they come up to you and say, hey, I have a full-time teaching position I have to take that's you know, in another state or two-hour drive from here. I'm moving. And then you lose that person. And rightfully so. Like, great. They were learning how to teach and they were a really good after-school person. But you can't support a family only working four hours a week. So you have to pursue these other other avenues. And I think that's the problem is you, you have this constant revolving door of really qualified coaches and teachers in the after-school space who are leaving. So I think, again, building inside your own community, inside that school, keeping those students in that program that are also teaching at the elementary school or middle school or high school right there. And they're just instead of coaching they're you know instead of coaching an interscholastic team in the u.s they're working in an after-school program so any other well um, and i think that go ahead Aaron. yeah i i mean i think that that's like you know one of the things that um dylan talks about in his chapter is this like involvement of youth and really allowing youth to run it. And so if you are able to create a situation, and this is obviously probably more at the secondary level than it is at the elementary level, but um, if you're, if you create a situation where the students are really kind of running the program and the adult, and I say that in air quotes, present is more of a supervisor and not necessarily driving the program then you can see those ideas and those concepts kind of be passed from generation of student leadership. But developing that takes time and a special person to be able to develop that culture, right? And so there is still that sense where you have to get that up and running and then how do you have someone carry it over? So I don't know. Yeah, I just had, uh, go ahead, John. Uh, just building on that, um, and I guess this is where, again, the context is, is different. You know, in, in the UK, um, a lot of our after-school provision is provided by outsourced external companies, um, and their role is to deliver physical activity, not necessarily to step back and be the facilitator, mm-hmm. uh, like you were saying, Erin. Um, and so that with it poses additional problems and additional challenges to, well, if you've got something that's useful uh, and working, how do we take the learning from it and scale it up and, and so on? It, it's really problematic if a lot of these programs are outsourced by companies who um, are profit orientated. Yeah, I think it's hugely problematic for sure. And I, and I think that these, you know, student design, student driven programs are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just had Carla Luguetti and one of her co-participants on um, on a podcast that's going to launch after this one about her work in uh, with African Australian refugee uh, students, and it it started from a community-based kind of kick around the ball program that has then scaled up because people in that community feel so uh, strongly about helping people in their own community. And it's not externally, like they don't have an external provider. It's built within the community. And I think that is a, is a fascinating line of, line of research for sure. And I think the other thing that 
I'm more like most interested in is what's the role of informal sport in after school programs outside of Australia, because we do have some data from Australia from Justin O'Connor and, and his colleagues, but we don't we don't know a lot about that. And I think that there's if you read the last chapter and read the conclusion, if you need ideas for future research, there's there's a ton in there. So um, any um, final thoughts or any other final things that you feel like um, we should be looking for going forward or anything about the book, Tom? Um, the only other thing I would probably add is, um, and again, it's sort of align, aligning with the points that we've already raised is, you know, how we probably need to know how well before and after school programs um, reinforce or challenge social justice issues um, that are evident. And I think that's a real strength of the book is that there's a social justice thread that runs throughout it. Um, but I think we still need more. We need to know more um, about how well they uh, reinforce or even reproduce um, or, or, or do challenge those social justice issues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Aaron? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just going to agree with you, Tom. I think that, you know, we we tried to make sure that that as we were kind of lining up chapters, right, and authors to make sure that that was kind of a string throughout the book. But I think you're right in the sense that we don't really know, as you had stated earlier, there's not tons of research in this area. And so I think that that is an important thing to keep in mind as we move forward. Absolutely. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Tom. Um, I think this is a good spot to wrap it up. Uh, The book is available um, on the Routledge website. Uh, It's part of the Routledge Studies in Physical Education Youth Sports Series. Um, You can find it there as an ebook. I actually asked our uh, university to get the ebook. They did that very, very quickly through the library. So um, all of our Mason students can just go on and um, right click, download that ebook. Um, so there are a bunch of different avenues to, uh, to get it. Um, we also want to thank all of the um, chapter authors who contributed to the book. Um, I think it's a great go-to spot for before and after school physical activity research. So. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate your time. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, Our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.